There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. There are not many institutions still in existence that can be credited as founders of what would become the nation of Canada. And when we think about the very earliest beginnings of this nation, most people do not think about Catholic nuns. But at a time when there were barely a dozen permanent houses in Quebec City, when there wasn't even a place called Montreal, when the European population along the St. Lawrence River was outnumbered 10 to 1 by First Nations, when a fledgling French colony in the New World was barely hanging on for its life, several Ursuline nuns arrived to provide spiritual, educational, and charitable support for the peoples of the St. Lawrence River Valley. But they also came with a mission, and that was to convert the indigenous population, part of the broader assimilationist policies of expanding European empires in the New World. Despite harsh winters, vicious enemies, constant warfare, and a whole host of challenges, the Ursuline nuns became symbols of endurance and strength in a colony that needed every ounce of strength and endurance to survive. They became key members of a small community, leaders for an even tinier female population, and crucial contributors to an imperial project that, while sitting on the knife edge of collapse, would expand to become the colony of Quebec and eventually the country of Canada. This is Season 5, Episode 18, Nuns on the Frontier, the Ursulines of Quebec. Today's book recommendation is by Professor Anne Little, and it is called The Many Captivities of Esther Wheelwright, published by Yale Press in 2016. You see, Esther was a young girl in what is now Maine when she was captured by raiding Abenaki. Her journey was quite incredible, from a prisoner of the Abenaki to an adopted Abenaki daughter to being schooled by the Ursulines in Quebec 
and eventually becoming an Ursuline nun herself. It is a well-researched and fascinating tale of a woman's journey during an incredibly harsh and unforgiving period in colonial North America. The origins of the Ursulines can be traced back to the Italian town of Brescia in the early 16th century. It was here, in 1535, that Angela Morici founded the Company of St. Ursula. This was an all-female religious order devoted to the service of the poor and needy. The Ursulines were officially recognized by the Catholic Church in 1546, and by 1572, the largest branch of the original company of St. Ursula embraced the monastic lifestyle. This was at the urging of the church itself. So we're talking about being cloistered and removed from the public eye. These Ursuline nuns would total between 15 and 20,000 members by the early 18th century, while continuing to serve the poor and needy, often through the creation of hospitals, the Ursulines also became well-known for opening educational institutions for young girls, providing one of the few opportunities for education for girls during the late medieval and early modern period. The story of the Ursulines in Canada begins with a young woman named Marie Guillard, who was born in Tours, France, in 1599. Marie, the daughter of a baker, was considered unusually spiritual for a woman of her social station. She did marry, and she did have a son, but her husband died in 1619, and it sent her into this deep depression. During this period of depression, or as they called it, melancholy and mourning, she went deeper and deeper into her own spirituality, eventually almost completely cutting herself off from the outside world and becoming devoted to meditation and prayer. By 1632, her calling, as she now saw it, led her to join the Ursulines, taking the name Marie de l'Incarnation. In 1638, Marie took her calling abroad, setting off for the New World with the hopes of converting the indigenous people in the fledgling colony of New France along the St. Lawrence River. Marie arrived with two other Ursuline nuns and three Augustinian sisters, the Augustinian religious order being one of the oldest religious orders in the Catholic Church, all with the objective of converting the First Nations to Catholicism. Now, New France at this time was simply put an extremely difficult place to live. The colony numbered barely 2,000 people of European descent compared with the tens of thousands of indigenous peoples living up and down the river, with nearly half of those Europeans living either in or around Quebec City, which was more like a walled town than any major city. While relations with the local First Nations were quite good, with the Wendat in particular, the colony was constantly under attack from the larger, more powerful Five Nations Haudenosaunee Confederacy farther to the south. In fact, 
a number of Ursuline nuns suffered through Haudenosaunee attacks well into the early 1660s. As well, the winters, of course, remained hard. Food was often scarce. There was the constant threat of famine, and Quebec relied heavily on support from France in order to survive. Simply put, the colony was constantly on the knife's edge of being wiped out, and its continued existence was in no way a foregone conclusion when Marie and her colleagues arrived in 1638. This was a dangerous and unforgiving world these women had arrived in. Nonetheless, they immediately went to work. With financial help, primarily from noble women within the colony, by the early 1640s, Marie and her colleagues established a permanent monastery. Today, it is known as the Ursuline Monastery, as well as a school for young girls, which was named after the ship the Ursuline sailed over on, the St. Joseph. The school was, in fact, the first school for girls in all of North America. It was at this school where young women between the ages of 6 and 16 from local indigenous tribes, mostly Algonquian-speaking peoples like the Maliseet, Abenaki, Innu, Nishnabi, but also Haudenosaunee-speaking peoples like the Wendat, would all come to be educated in French culture, language, and most importantly, religion. Marie, who became the leading Ursuline in New France, learned several indigenous languages in order to facilitate this assimilation-slash-education process. She, in fact, wrote dictionaries and catechisms in the language of Montagné, spoken by the Innu, Wendat, a Haudenosaunee language spoken by the Wendat peoples, and Algonquin, spoken by the Abenaki and Maliseet. So multiple languages, multiple texts. While at first the school was intended to be only for indigenous girls, the enrollment was unsurprisingly quite low. Only 20 girls attended in the first couple of years. Most indigenous parents were understandably reluctant to let their young girls attend a school so bent on cultural assimilation. As well as outbreaks of European disease ravaged various indigenous communities throughout the St. Lawrence River Valley, many communities and leaders and parents came to believe that it was members of religious orders like the Jesuits and the Ursulines who actually spread the diseases, a belief not far from the truth, actually. Thus, it wasn't long before the Ursulines opened up their classroom to French-Canadian girls as well. By the 1680s, only 70 indigenous girls had gone through the school compared to over 500 French-Canadian girls. The education received at the school, under the tutelage of the Ursulines, consisted of religious instruction and academic instruction. Academic instruction in this context meant reading, grammar, writing, arithmetic, 
As well, for young girls, there was also prep courses. This was sort of preparing women for marriage and motherhood. So things like needlework, social conduct and manners, painting, singing, and of course, child rearing. One of the most famous pupils to come out of this Ursuline school was Marie Marguerite de Uville, who was one of the founders of the Sisters of Charity of Montreal, or more commonly known as the Grey Nuns. The Grey Nuns became important contributors to Montreal's early community and social support services in the 17th and 18th century. While primarily providing education and religious guidance for the small female population in and around Quebec City, the Ursulines also played an important role in providing comfort and support for the hundreds of new women arriving in the colony as part of a massive female emigration program. These women were the famous filles de roi. Several hundred young unmarried women were transported from France to New France in the 1660s and 1670s to help increase the European population in a colony suffering from low birth rates due to a severely unbalanced ratio of men to women. The Ursulines provided shelter for the arriving Fidois until they found a spouse or were able to secure their own accommodations. It is interesting to note, however, that when not engaged in their public work, the Ursulines totally secluded themselves behind the walls of their convent. In Quebec City, for instance, the only way to communicate with the nuns when they were secluded like this was by letter. One had to drop a letter in a mail slot and hope for a return letter sometime later on. The Ursulines would go weeks and even months without ever being seen in public. Folks, before we continue, I want to take a second to let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal, for instance, gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So if you want to donate two bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. We survive heavily on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. And we thank everyone who has donated. We know that times are tough right now. and We appreciate every cent that you can spare. As well, on our Facebook page and on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you. So please don't be shy. And thank you to all who have donated again. We could not keep doing this without you. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. Even though Marie de l'Incarnation died in 1672, the Ursulines continued their work. With growing numbers of attendees at the school and an increasing population within the colony, uh, the Fidoua migration scheme actually worked, the numbers of actual Ursulines in Canada began to grow as well. By the way, 
By the 1670s, New France was starting to be referred to interchangeably as Canada or the Canadas. By 1686, there were nearly 30 Ursuline nuns operating in New France, with two-thirds of them having been born in Canada. By this time, the Ursulines had expanded to Montreal, that future great city having been established in 1642, and the Ursulines had even opened a second official monastery in Trois-Rivières. The endurance of the Ursuline order is fairly remarkable. Not only did they cope with a harsh environment and periods of famine and disease, they dealt with constant violence and warfare. In the 1650s, the threat from the Five Nations Confederacy was so severe that the Ursulines of New France were even pressured to return home by their sisters back in Europe. The Ursulines were often in the middle of the many Anglo-French conflicts of the latter 17th and early 18th century. It was not uncommon, for instance, for Ursuline nuns to often tend to both French and British soldiers wounded in the various battles throughout the colony. The Ursulines even endured the significant Siege of Quebec in 1759 during the Seven Years' War. After the Battle of the Plains of Abraham in September of 59, which ended the Siege of Quebec, wounded French and British soldiers were cared for side by side in the Ursuline Monastery. Even though the British eventually conquered Quebec and the rest of New France, the Ursulines continued to survive and even expand under British rule. The British approach to the rule of New France was with a surprising degree of tolerance, allowing the French-Canadian population to continue practicing Catholicism and allowing the Catholic Church to continue to have a presence in the newly conquered colony. Thus, within this policy of tolerance, which was remarkable considering anti-Catholic attitudes throughout the rest of the British Empire and within Britain herself, the Ursulines continued their work. By the end of the 18th century, there were nearly 100 Ursulines working in the now British colony of Quebec. The Ursulines even endured another siege of Quebec during the American Revolution. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. By the 19th century, the Ursulines began to expand their operations outside of Quebec's borders. We see them go as far south as Louisiana and Texas, as far west as the Canadian prairies in Montana. New schools, new monasteries were being established throughout North America, though by this time, the Ursulines had lost their monopoly 
on girls' education in Canada, as private schools, state-sponsored schools, and even other religious orders competed for the minds of young women. By the end of the 19th century, the Ursulines were becoming global, with Canadian nuns being sent as missionaries to China, Japan, and all throughout Central and Southern America. By the early 20th century, the Ursulines provided one of the most comprehensive and modern curriculums of any Catholic order in the world. Their centuries-long emphasis on teaching had produced nuns interested in developing both pedagogy and curriculum. It was not uncommon, for instance, for the Ursulines to adapt their curriculum to the changing technology of the day. For instance, as the Industrial Revolution expanded and as new uh, inventions were coming out, you saw the changing curriculum within the Ursulines' courses, uh, courses in stenography, courses in telegraphy, for instance, as all this new technology became more and more widely available. Despite the Ursulines occupying a position as a more modern and relevant branch of the Catholic Church, the post-Second World War period witnessed a steady decline in their numbers. During the Quiet Revolution in Quebec, which saw a rapid modernization of the Quebec education system with particular emphasis on secularization, Working nuns and Ursuline-run institutions were replaced more and more by provincially-run schools and provincially-trained staff. As both Quebec and Canada secularized in the latter half of the 20th century, religious orders like the Ursulines saw a concurrent decline in their numbers, their followers, and their relevance. Even the beatification of Marie de l'Incarnation in 1980 and her later canonization in 2014 did little to reinvigorate the struggling order. By the 21st century, the Ursulines were more a relic of long ago past than modern facilitators of women's education. In the summer of 2017, the remaining Ursulines still living in the original monastery in Quebec City, many of them aged and infirm, moved out of their 400-year-old home for good. Now, this is not to say that the Ursulines are gone. While certainly smaller in number, they still actively work within Quebec and elsewhere in North America, promoting education in English and French, and also providing support services to newly arriving immigrants. Other members have taken on new roles as social justice activists and advocates for environmental sustainability. The Ursulines occupy a unique place in the history of Quebec, the history of women, and the history of education in this country. From opening the first school for girls on the continent to providing important charitable services for the poor during the early years of the colony, to expanding their presence throughout the continent and eventually even having nuns engaged in international missionary work, the Ursulines have endured centuries of struggles, trials, and tribulations, while acting as one of the more modern and forward-thinking branches of the Catholic Church. This is a church 
whose influence in Canada, and especially in Quebec, has witnessed a precipitous decline. Perhaps the Ursulines can provide a more modern and flexible template for a new way of addressing the role that religion could play in an increasingly secular Canadian society. Either way, while many might see them as relics of a colonial and imperialist past, women who struggled and endured during a tumultuous period in the history of this country cannot be ignored, who displayed toughness and stubbornness, which were keys to survival in a harsh environment amidst a continent ripped apart by war. And through it all, the Ursulines endured, thus cementing themselves as an important component of the founding of Canada. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.